0: Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash MPN to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash MPN. Terms and conditions apply.
1: Welcome to Collective Cafe To Go. This is the podcast version of the Collective Cafe. Now, the Collective Cafe happens every single weekday, Monday through Friday, from 8 to 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time in alpha collectives discord server discord.gg forward slash alpha collective it is free it always will be free there are no strings there is no bait and switch if you like to listen live and even participate come onto stage comment in our back chat you can do that whether you're on the treadmill getting the kids ready for school getting yourself ready for work commuting into the big bad city, or maybe just even commuting from your bedroom into your home office. On Monday, we manifest. On Tuesday, we talk thought leadership. On Wednesday, we have guests take the stage, almost like an open mic. On Thursday, we do live book reads and discussions. And then on Friday, it's no agenda Friday, where there is no agenda. Start your day off on the right foot, on the front foot with virtual coffee, with the collective cafe, where we mastermind, we manifest, we collaborate, we help one another at the business of Web3 or anything else that intersects, whether it's culture, collaboration, creativity, innovation, disruption. So give us a subscribe if you're listening on the podcast or come and attend one day. Remember, it is a safe welcoming space and you will never ever be put on the spot. This is the Collective Cafe to go. Well good morning, good morning, good morning everyone. Good morning Tim. We're doing a live read of Turn the Ship Around. How are we going to turn the ship around without praxim, who's going to be reading to us? This could be a an interesting conundrum for us. Uh, so while we wait for him, um, I was able to set up the Po today. We'll do the same thing. Uh, Eight fifty-nine to nine fourteen seems like a nice ability to, you know, just start the Po right at the end. Um, mention the code at some point during the show, the episode. I don't know—is it a show, an episode, or is it just us hanging out having virtual coffee? Certainly people listening on the podcast would would be listening to it as an episode or a show um, but yeah, so uh, that code will be released shortly. I think um, in the interim while we wait for our master reader and storyteller um, I'm really enjoying the book uh, turn the ship around turn the beat around, turn the beat around um. I had uh, a great session yesterday. Uh, I did a live mm-hmm. episode of the show. And um, I kind of feel when I've been away, um, I, I want to be able to, um, uh, yeah, I just want to do like a live episode. So, Jeremy Delk, uh, who swears like a sailor, and uh, he wrote a book. Um, he just wrote a book um, called Without a Plan. And, uh, you know, all about the trials and tribulations, I guess, of being an entrepreneur um I, I really loved it um i'll tell you um without a plan um he s- talks about failing your way to success it's called without a plan and an un- an, un- an unbound without a plan a memoir of unbound action and failing my way to success what is it to fail your way to success i just put the link to the uh, amazon book in the back chat and um what I'm going to do is failing uh, Praxim joining us, and no doubt there is a good reason. Um, I am going to uh, do my show notes and uh, and discuss the episode. I don't know if any of you uh, listened to it. Um, I loved it. You know, you know, I, I kind of love the. Um, I guess, I guess we would call it. Uh, it's like intellectual gymnastics it's like a but it's it's not just intellectual gymnastics it's almost like a like an obstacle course I love the ability to have different people on my show with different energies with different uh, mos with different approaches with different backgrounds the more diverse the better in a way what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to like determine um my you, you know my 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 parameters my spectrum my 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 repertoire you know um my range i think that's a better word my range as as a talk show host can i interview a child can i interview someone who's on their deathbed can i interview someone who's unbelievably famous can i interview someone who's who's not and has stage fright um to me this is this is kind of like part of the why here. This is part of my um, you know my motivation, and you know I, I'm very much like a chameleon, in the sense that I will I will mirror you. I will adapt to you. I won't expect you to have to fit into my approach. I will mirror your energy. Your you swear, I swear. You don't swear. I probably won't swear either. Um, And I've always felt like in many respects in life I've been a chameleon. Um, Being able to adapt even accents, um, intonations, um, it's just a very natural thing to to attempt to fit in. Now, look, there's some, I I mean, that was a loaded point I just made in an attempt to fit in because I'm never going to say podcast. I'm never going to say grass. It just doesn't sound right podcast and gross and I actually realize the more i say podcast and gross and and some of these south african words the more weird it feels it, it does feel weird to me um it you know i i almost have to say it with a caveat which is which is or as we say in south africa podcast it's like a little bit of an apology or a little bit of an annotation and yet i just can't say podcast um and so you know it's it's uh it, it it was great. So yesterday I mean he he swore a lot, I swore a little. Um but I've always but I've also learned, you know, just throughout my life that, you know, when you watch The Walking Dead, it's really not a show about zombies. When you watch a Quentin Tarantino movie, it's really not about the gratuitous violence or or, or the or expletives. You actually understand that it's art. And and not many people have the ability to look beyond. They get offended. You know, even the cover of my book, Built to Suck. Oh, that's a bad word, suck. We can't use the word suck. You suck. Can't use that word, even though the people that are offended by that probably use a lot worse words than that in their lives. So do their consumers. So do their employees. So do their partners. So does the world. And they probably do things a lot worse than the things that they say, too. Something I've always never been able to uh, become. Like, I've always been so confused. You'll watch Pulp Fiction on, I don't know, TNT or one of those channels. And all the violence is there. The brain's being splattered on the backseat of the car. But, you know, but words, you know, fuck becomes flip. You know, or Jesus Christ becomes Jiminy Cricket. And uh, it's just a massive, um, I don't know, it's, a, it's not an irony or contradiction. It's a hypocrisy, which is we want to spare you know, the prudes or the children from the bad words. But the violence is okay. Gee, I wonder why there's so much violence in this country. Um, so that's my little tangent. Praxum, I've just been treading water for you, my friend, uh, because it has turned the ship around. Uh, and I was almost having to turn this entire episode around, wondering where you were. But you are here now.
2: I uh, just dealing with a uh, little snow this morning. We, we got like a foot overnight. <laughs> wow.
1: I don't, I, don't think I, just, uh... I don't think we've had an inch this entire winter. Um, more than an inch here in the in the Northeast.
2: Interesting. Uh, they predicted this is going to be the snow apocalypse of this year, and it was a little disappointing. Yesterday we had four or five inches. Today there looks to be more like a foot. So I'm just running a be, minute behind, and I've actually—I don't know about you guys, but I've noticed that Discord on my mobile has been having problems. Well, it, it's, it likes not sending alerts. Audio doesn't work. I don't know.
1: It's a bad technology day, shall we say? But uh But, yes. the, but the good I'm news. Here. Yeah, but the good news is that uh, I have created the PoEP and um and the uh code is hard stop cuz we have a hard stop at 9 today like we always have yep. a hard stop so the code for bez one word all lowercase, hard stop and it will be available from uh 8:59 to 9:14 um and um, all right yeah so over to you my friend we're 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 turning the ship around we're turning this episode around we were going you know, we we were heading on a one way trip out of town until you came back and saved us. I was actually just talking about Jeremy Delk. I did a live episode of the show. Um, uh, I thought uh, I thought it was some of the insights were just exceptional. Like I loved the way he said. Uh, one of the things he said is, I mean, it sounds so simple, but he said that you know, if you want something or expect something to ten x, then you also have to be um, open and aware to the the fact that it could also, you know, divide by 10. So it was like, you know, 10x equals divide by 10. And I just thought it was a brilliant idea, which is in all the search for the 10x and for the next doge and for the next big thing, are we actually embracing and open to the possibility that it could also not just halve, but actually decrease tenfold? And I was like, yeah, that's brilliant. Because if you can't handle, you want the 10x uh, return. But if you can't handle the divide by 10 risk, then you probably shouldn't be in the space in the first place. I just thought that was brilliant. Um, and there were some other things as well. But uh, anyway, over to you. I'm going to go and mute and I will pepper in uh, commentary uh, either when I can't help myself or when you ask me for it.
2: Well, I'll be asking. Um, I'd like to make this a discussion because it's such a good story. So, um, stay on up. And, uh, Bez, join if you would like. Anybody else who's uh, interested in talking about Turn the Ship Around, the true story of turning followers into leaders. We're on the first full chapter called Pain. How has failure shaped you? A department head, I tried to implement a new leadership approach on Will Rogers and failed. Subtitle, 1989, the Irish Sea. 8,000 tons of steel moved silently, hidden in the depths of the Irish Sea. In the control room of the USS Will Rogers, the officer on deck ordered the ship towards the deeper, wider expanse of the North Atlantic. Glancing at the missile control panel, he could see the status of 16 Poseidon missiles on board each capable of carrying fourteen multiple nuclear armed reentry vehicles. These missiles were the sole reason for the existence of the U of the Will Rogers, a nuclear powered ballistic missile submarine, SSBN for short. The kind of submarine the crew affectionately called a boomer, one thing above all else mattered for a boomer, to be at sea and in condition that would enable it to execute a strike if so ordered. SSBNs were a vital component of America's strategic defense. The control room was the nerve center of the ship. So important were its 16 missiles invulnerable to attack once underway and submerged that boomers had two crews, a blue crew and a gold crew. To maximize the time the submarine could spend at sea on strategic deterrent patrol, the crews lived near New London, Connecticut, and Will Rogers was operated out of a forward base at Hawley Loch, Scotland. Every three months, the crews would swap with a three-day turnaround turnover period. After assuming the boat from the other crew, the new crew would spend four weeks doing the necessary corrective and preventative maintenance before going to sea. In order for the United States to have a credible strategic deterrent, the missiles needed to be ready to go. If Will Rogers couldn't make it on time, Another submarine would have to remain at sea longer. Forty-one of these ballistic missile submarines were built between 1958 and 1965 in response to the Soviet threat. An impressive industrial accomplishment. Will Rogers was the last of 41 SSBNs and had operated nearly continuously since its commissioning. The original submarines were being replaced by the newer and more capable Ohio class. However, Will Rogers... Still had important operational tasks to perform. Nevertheless, after 33 years, it was a tired ship, worse during the patrol before I reported aboard. Will Rogers had collided with a trawler and failed an important certification. I checked the chart in the control room. We were on track to start the deep dive in about half an hour. I walked aft past the rows of missile tubes in the reactor compartment to the engine room. With my flashlight, I started doing last-minute walkabout. All our repairs had been properly certified as completed, but I, it, but it wouldn't hurt to do one more visual check. As engineering officer for the Blue Crew, I was responsible for inspecting the nuclear reactor and important auxiliary equipment and supervising the 60 men who maintained and operated it. There was a constant tension between doing things right and meeting deadlines. Every member of the crew felt it. The job was grueling, and I wasn't particularly happy with how things were going. The officer I relieved was very involved in details. He was always reviewing technical documents and directing maintenance and other operations. I was determined to change that by giving the men more control of their work, more decision-making authority, and fewer lists of, lists of tasks. In doing so, I was I hoped to bring the passion and experience on the sunfish to the Will Rogers. In this, I was going against the tide. Just prior to going aboard, I'd had the chance to ride another SSBN for several days. It was undergoing an underway war-fitting inspection, and the crew were tasked with different missions that required significant internal coordination. I followed the captain around to see what he did. He was everywhere, dashing to the engine room, then back to control, running to sonar, and from there to the torpedo room. I was exhausted before 24 hours were over. I'm not sure he ever slept during the three days I was observing. That ship did well on its its inspection, and the inspection team specifically cited the involvement of the captain. I had a sense of unease because I knew that wasn't how I wanted to run a submarine. Even if it were, I knew I could not physically do what he did. Even though the Navy encouraged this kind of top-down leadership, I pressed forward with my Sunfish-inspired plan to give control to the department rather than orders. For example, rather than giving a specific list of tasks to the division officers and chiefs of the Will Rogers, I gave broad guidance and told them to prepare the task list and present the list to me, rather than telling everyone what, they, what we needed to do. I would ask questions about how they thought we should approach a problem rather than being the center, central hub coordinating maintenance between two divisions. I told the division chief to talk to each other directly. I want to pause here for a second. So this, this is a fascinating push-pull di- dynamic that th- he's talking about. And I'm recently experiencing one of these things where uh, in product management, it's fascinating. Like some people can just say, execute XYZ. And others say, can you get XYZ done for me? And it is a dichotomy that uh, is daily challenged because – humans are not predictable uh something like this where it's maintenance right you're you're fixing the same thing there should be fairly little uh, variability is is interesting but when you're inventing creating uh it it's interesting to have these similar uh, two two sides of the coin uh that, that, joseph that's for you uh with its rim you know where is the perspective do you have a thought on that joseph
1: no, I'm just, I'm I actually, uh, I'm enjoying the setup and the context, and um, I just want to see where it leads, and then I'll, I'll I'll jump in.
2: Oh, we've got a little bit more here. Things did not go well. During the maintenance period, we made several errors that required us to redo work. We fell behind schedule. We also had several jobs that didn't start on time because their mid-level management had not assembled all the parts and permissions or established the propulsion plant conditions necessary to do the work. I overheard people wishing for the old engineer bag who would just tell them what to do. Indeed, it would have been so much faster just to tell people what to do, and I frequently found myself barking out a list of orders just to get the work done. I wasn't happy with myself, but no one else seemed to mind much. I seemed to be the only one who wanted a more democratic and empowered workplace, and I wondered if I was on the right track. It was touch and go, but the maintenance period came to an end. My efforts to empower others seemed to be working. There was a budding sense of optimism. We'd make it on time. In a moment, I realized we wouldn't. I dropped on the ladder to the lower level of the engine room. I was scanning the various pieces of equipment with my flashlight when I was stopped cold by what I saw. The nuts holding the bolts for the end bell of a large... Seawater heat exchanger had been improperly installed. The nuts weren't sufficiently grabbing the threads of the bolt. They were close, but I was sure they didn't meet the technical specification. Someone had taken a shortcut. This cooler was subjected to full submergence pressure. Even a small leak would cause seawater to spray into the ship with tremendous force. Failure would be catastrophic. My heart sank. The deep dive should be starting shortly. I needed to cancel that immediately. Not only would we need to reassemble this cooler, we would need to inspect all the other coolers to make sure the mistake hadn't been repeated. Most important of all, we would need to figure out how this had happened. I called the OOD and told him we'd need to postpone the deep dive. Then I started the long walk forward to tell the captain. Walking past the 16 tubes in the missile compartment, I felt quite alone. The reputation of the ship and my department would suffer. My efforts at empowering my team had failed. This should never have happened. As expected, the captain had a fit. Of course, that didn't help fix the problem. After this, things got worse. I had wanted to give my team more authority and control, but my heart wasn't in it anymore. I would give decision-making control to my people, but they'd make bad decisions. If I was going to get yelled at, at least I wanted it to be my fault. I went back to leading it in the way I'd been taught. I personally briefed every event. I approved all decisions myself. I set up the systems where reports came to me all day and all night. I never slept well because messengers were waking me so I could make decisions. I was exhausted and miserable. The men in the department weren't happy either, but they stoically went about their jobs. I prevented any more major problems, but... Everything hinged on me. Numerous times I found errors. Far from being proud of catching these mistakes, I lamented my indispensability and worried what would happen when I was tired, asleep, or wrong. I assessed my chances of being selected for executive officer, my next career milestone, as low. None of the other department heads on the Will Rogers were selected, screened for executive officer. None of the department heads of the Gold Crews screened either. Neither executive officer screened for captain. The captain wasn't promoted. The Will Rogers was a cemetery for careers. I made plans to do something else with my life. I took a job doing START and INF treaty inspections in the former Soviet Union with on-site inspecting agency instead of going to a submarine staff job. I returned from an inspection in Volgograd, To find a message in my inbox, I had screened for the executive officer the next step after my tour as an engineer department head. I would be going back to sea on a submarine. I should have been ecstatic executive officer was one step below captain. Instead, I was strangely ambivalent. I would have to grapple with the tension between how I aspired to be a leader and how I actually was. That's a section break. I think his story is fantastic here. Um, obviously, he's doing something that's getting noticed, uh, but you know it's not uh, fulfilling because it's not rolling through the organization. I think people like this crew who want to do it one way and want to be told what to do are punching a time card sometimes, right? And they don't want to truly engage. Um, it's, it's a fascinating human uh, behavior to observe. Thinking anew, while assigned to the on-site inspection agency, I had contemplate what had happened on the Will Rogers. I started reading everything I could about leadership, management, psychology, communication, motivation, and human behavior. I thought deeply about what motivated me and how I wanted to be treated. I remembered the release of energy, passion, and creativity I had experienced running my own watch team on the Sunfish. I was motivated to avoid any reoccurrence of the pain, frustration, and emptiness of my three years on the Will Rogers, both being directed and directing others. At the end of that study, I was troubled by three contradictions. First, though I liked the idea of empowerment, I didn't understand why empowerment was needed. It seemed to me that humans are both in a state of action and natural empowerment. After all, it wasn't likely that a species that was naturally passive could have taken over the planet empowerment programs appeared to be a reaction to the fact that they that we had actively disempowered people additionally it seemed inherently contradictory to have an empowerment program whereby i would empower my subordinates and my boss would empower me i felt my power came from within and attempts to empower me felt like manipulation second the way i was told to manage others was not the way i wanted to be managed i felt i was at my best when given specific goals but broad latitude and how to accomplish them i didn't respond well to the exec to executing a bunch of tasks in fact being treated the that way irritated me and caused me to shut my brain down that was intellectually wasteful and unfulfilling third I was disturbed by the close coupling of the technical competence of the leader with the performance of the organization. Ships ship with good commanding officers, COs, did well, as had the SSB and I-Road. Ships that didn't have good COs didn't do well, but a good ship could become a bad ship overnight when a new CO came aboard. And there was a further twist. Every so often a mishap occurred that caused people to shake their heads and lament. It happened on such a good ship. It seems that the captain had made a mistake, and the crew, lemming-like, just followed him. I concluded that the competence could not rest solely with the leader; it had to run through the entire organization. Essentially, what I had been trying to achieve on the Will Rogers was to run an empowerment program with a leader-follower structure, the leader structure, leadership structure, which was strongly reinforced by behavior and expectations of the captain was one of do what you are told. Hence, my efforts amounted to little more than do what you're told, but it just didn't work.
1: There is... What I was trying... Is, is there a break coming? Because I'm like bursting at the seams.
2: Yes, almost there. Okay. Little little, little little section. What I was trying to do with an extension of the way things work on the sunfish, on that ship I was empowered, but the sense of leadership stopped with me. Those in my watch team were followers in the traditional model that what made it so liberating was that for those six hours I didn't feel like a follower. That's what I wanted to pass on to the officers of the crew of the Will Rogers Engineering Department. Pause. Joseph. Hit us with your thoughts.
1: Well, the, the, there was so much in that last, uh, you know, kind of few paragraphs that I don't even know where to start. I mean, there was this idea of tell me what to do, right, versus empower, versus I'd rather beg for forgiveness than ask for permission. So you have this idea of um, almost an like an obligation from a leadership standpoint um, to tell people what to do. I mean, I think that's almost like there's there's almost like a, I guess a Maslowian hierarchy, and I think a leader at the very minimum has to be able to do that. They have to be able to tell people what to do, know what to do, tell them what to do, be clear about what needs to be done. That is the foundation um i've I don't think I've been a good leader in the past when I've tried to my my philosophy has always been. If I'm hiring a copywriter to write copy for me, why would I tell them? In this case, why would I tell them what to do? Why would I? Uh, why would I give them my lines and ask them what they thought about it? I should get out of their way and let them do what they do best. I should give them an open brief. I should give them the freedom and the flexibility to really, really exercise their chops, their muscle, and uh, you know, as long as I give them. You've heard me say this before. I'll give them the framework. And I'll say, but inside this framework, inside this box, you can do what the hell you want. But what I've learned is not everybody wants that or needs that. Some people want to be told what to do. And the more junior they are, the more the more they want to be told what to do. Again, my 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 mistake in, in management positions in the past has been like, I see the 20-year-old, the 19-year-old, the intern, the 24-year-old, and I'm like, I want... Like, I know what it is to be that. They, I want to say, just come on, you know, just go for it, flex, you know, speak up in meetings, just, you know, just because that's what the millennial wants, that's what the Gen Z wants. But actually, in some cases, what they need and want desperately is the structure and actually the control. They may not even know they want it, but they need it. They need to be taught. They need, initially, the rinse and repeat, the hand-holding, the spoon-feeding, before they can then truly be empowered. So there's this whole dynamic intention about that. And then and then we move to this concept of the fact the ship, you know, uh, the captain goes down with the ship, right? But sometimes it's the captain's fault that the ship goes down. That's another way to think about it. You know, this idea of a good ship becomes a bad ship because of the captain, because of the leader. I mean, I think that that that's a crazy thought, but it's also it makes sense. You know, the buck stops here. The buck stops here. The ultimate leader says that. The ultimate leader realizes when shit goes wrong, when things go wrong, they should take the fall, whether it was their fault or not. They created the environment, the culture, or they perpetuated it, or they didn't do enough to fix it. But ultimately, full responsibility and autonomy is the ability to, you know, to not make excuses or shift the blame, but to take that, you know, to to take the ultimate and pay the ultimate price. So I found it fascinating, this idea that an entire... You know, we're not just talking about a ship here. We're not just talking about a, a sailboat. We're talking about a ship with, like, nuclear payload. I mean, it's insane, you know, and also realizing... And, and, and we heard this idea of, you know, the the new captain making a mistake. Well, mistakes can actually cost lives. What about, what about a, a new captain that doesn't even make a mistake? But they just are incompetent or they're, or, or maybe they're not incompetent. Maybe they're just, you know, control freaks or, or, you know, I mean, it could be everything from being a narcissist and a control freak to just being insecure. And, and, you know, I mean, there's so many reasons why a good captain can go bad or why a good ship can go bad. So like, I'm just throwing stuff at you, but like, I just found that to be a very, very like fertile uh, you know, a uh, couple of pages that just opened up, uh, you know, a whole floodgate, and then of course the final part, praxim, that they were talking about is like, e- like, is it fair just to blame the person at the top, and you know, and just everyone points a finger until eventually it gets the top. It's like, what about everyone else? What about the autonomy? What about the empowerment? What about the the people to say, you know, like, like my job, I am a cog in a machine. But without me, without my cog, the machine doesn't function. So instead of again transferring and laying the blame and and looking elsewhere, you know, look inside yourself and say, what can I do? How can I influence the people around me? Whether I'm a leader, whether I'm a follower, whether I'm an, a subordinate, or whether I'm a superior. So yeah, a lot of thoughts.
2: You know, I, for me, this goes to types of leadership, right? Uh, where sometimes you'll see an organization solely driven by an individual, right? And the organization, if the individual is not there, will completely fall apart. And so it's that indispensable nature that um, Marquette pointed out, right? You end up being de facto indispensable in the chain of decision making. Now, what I've learned over my years of experience is that you can't Unless it's truly like a two-person organization or a very small organization, you can't let all the decisions bubble to the top person in the chain to make the final decision. They can have approval, they can have input, like you pointed out, right, frameworks, uh, final reviews, you know, please tweak this, adjust that, otherwise, you know, move ahead. Or I I guess we didn't set the brief right together, right? So let's let's redefine the framework because this framework didn't achieve the goal. But in this case, right, when the, in the example of the other ship where the captain's running around or the, the, the commander's running around just as busily as everybody else, it seems detrimental because if you're not a super person or if you have one bad day or, God forbid, you catch a cold, um, I don't know what you do, right? That You can't stop all these other people from working. And I think that delineation and separation of work and re- responsibility is the crux of the book, right? I think all the people in something like a nuclear sub have already gone through screening and training to be capable at their roles. They've been, they've contributed to the the larger sum, but what, what is what was that that he said that even though, even though we want to empower somebody, um, it it's not enough. Tim, welcome to the stage. Do you have some uh, comments you'd like to throw into this?
3: Yeah. Good morning. Well, you know, I I love in this section is the the highlighting of what the the users, uh, you know, what the staff had expected. So while he was trying to empower them. That was that was from the leader down to try and empower them that's not what they were set up for that's not the conditions that they were trying to operate under and so you're changing the paradigm for the workers to say look I'm trying to empower you but all of the the systems around how they do their job how they're measured how how they're how, how they're deemed as you know air quotes successful um, aren't there yet so it, it's this weird, you know, there's this new way that has nothing around it, right? It doesn't have any of the traps of the systems and, and, and the environment around it. The old way does. And then we say, you know, and, and he says, you know, the people were grumbling. They wanted him to behave the old way.
2: The old way. Yeah, and, and I am sure when you look at the, a crew like this, I'm sure a lot of these folks have been on many uh, assignments. They're all sorts of uh, experience levels and years in the military, and maybe in this case, and right, the change is not uh, normal, (laughs) right? And if it is changed, it is very prescriptive. You will go to class. You will learn. You will right. You'll take on new duties, but we're going to educate you how to do those new duties. It, the new duties don't come from a commander saying, just do it this different way.
3: <laughs> right. So it, it it goes to the, and you kind of, you know, and I see this all all the time in my work, like you need to go through this friction of we're trying this new way. And then here's all the things. It doesn't, it doesn't fit the mold. It doesn't fit the process. They're, they're, they're the expectations, you know, the expectation environment, hasn't changed yet. There, there's a million things that have not changed. We're changing this one thing, and we're expecting that it's gonna have the this you know revolutionary impact on the users, that they're gonna, you know, have this, you know, aha moment. That doesn't happen. It, it, what happens is the frustrations, and in those frustrations are all of the levers that you can continue working on. It it's that that diagram of success, you know, everybody thinks it's a straight line up and to the right and yet it's the squiggly up down roller coaster um that's just how it goes
2: you totally got it it's a squiggly line and i think this journey of this book is the squiggly line (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. well thank you um uh, we will take the squiggly line to finish out this chapter and some questions to ponder Okay, a couple, a couple more paragraphs left here. One of the things that limits our learning is our belief that we already know something. My experience on the Will Rogers convinced me there was something fundamentally wrong with our approach. Simply extorting people to be proactive, take ownership, be involved in all the other aspects of empowerment programs just scratch the surface. It was only after serving on the Will Rogers that I opened myself up to the new idea about leadership. I began to seriously question the image of the sea captain as master and commander. Here's your uh, example, Joseph, going down with the ship. I began to wonder why everything I'd been taught about leadership was wrong. Question mark. And then this, so there's actually some uh, questions to consider here. And I think we've covered a couple of them. What is empowerment and why do we need it? Do you need someone else to empower you? How reliant is your organization on decision-making of one person or a small group of people? What kind of leadership model does your business or organization use? When you think of the movie image that depict leadership, who and what comes to mind? What assumptions are embedded in those images? How do these images influence how you think about yourself as a leader? To what extent do these images limit your growth as a leader? I think we we just jumped ahead of this a little bit uh, in our discussion, which is, Joseph, you've covered a lot of these key items. Is like if you look in an organization, you see what their leadership is like in success or failure. Obviously, more in failure because you can point to something's obviously not working. Um do we also as people and external entities observe and say something is working when there's nothing to point at other than maybe financial success or business success? Not, you know, not all success is measured financially, right? In the Navy, success is your ship is on, on sale on time and safely, right? So, uh, unfortunately, I only have one relatively large successful uh, view of organizations, which is are you doing well financially, so I think taking these ideas is fascinating. So there was a couple more questions that came up here. Are there any more uh, ideas that, that spurred for anyone?
1: I think, you know, again, I think this idea of, um, you know, as I was talking about Jeremy Delk, failing your way to success. Um I mean, I even asked him this question. We had this like really, really interesting, um, you know, like amazing discussion about this idea of, um, you know, we see people being successful who are successful. And I used like what Fanzo says must be nice. Must be nice to be you with 100,000 followers. Must be nice to be you having sold your company. Must be nice for you to have struck at gold with that NFT. Um, and what we don't see often is all the hard work, all the sacrifices, all the failures, all the rejections, which is why I kind of use the phrase an overnight success 52 years in the making. I don't even say three years when I talk about my show. I say 52 years in the making, and if and when I find that success, people be must be nice to be jaffy must be nice to be him, must be nice to have his own talk show. Everything just got, everything is easy for him. Everything and it's and it's it's not. But I but I actually said to to Jeremy, I was like, so why when we tell people I mean Jeremy says, Listen, I've had twenty amazing business successes, but you know, in order to get there I've had I don't know whether you said two hundred or two thousand just embarrassments and failures. We hear that viscerally. We hear that, you know, intellectually. But I said, why do people not take it to heart? Why do people not actually, like, say, like, that's life-changing advice? I do need to fail. I do need to embrace failure. Now, that's all my setup for being able to create a culture in an organization where, you know, and I've often said this, I'm not saying we should necessarily reward failure, but we shouldn't punish it. We shouldn't hold it against people. Now, in the case of a nuclear submarine, you know, failure <laughs> failure has unbelievably dire and you know and permanent consequences. So I think we have to again use our traffic lights for that, right? With which is the red, the yellow, and the, we no red, right? Red is like lives lost in this context. You know, yellow is probably you know. Injuries to a lot of money, time, uh, but you know, pretty dire consequences, but, but not life lost. And green is like live to fight another day. So it's, it's this idea of the finger pointing, the blame, the, the lack of accountability, or just the fear to take a chance, the fear to actually be bold enough to try something new and be prepared to live with those consequences. And so that, like, this whole concept of leader, follower, leaders creating other leaders, there's so much stuff going on there. But I do think that, and and Tim, I saw you come off, I'll, I'll let you jump in. The key, again, is to be able to, I think, maybe classify, you know, I always do things in threes, my traffic lights. But we have to be able to determine a, what are the red mistakes, the, the yellow mistakes and the green mistakes? Um, but also we have to be mindful of the fact that if everyone is so afraid to make that red mistake, they won't make the yellow mistakes. And if they are afraid to make the yellow mistakes, they won't make the green mistakes. So it, it, it's almost like the buffers, the protections – you know, the, how do you know going into something and I'm, you know, being a bit esoteric, but how do you know whether it's going to be a green or yellow or red mistake? Um, isn't it just, it's the, you know, the chimps and the bananas. Isn't it just easier to not stick your neck out? I'll kind of leave it at that. What do you think, Tim?
3: Well, absolutely. And I do want to go back, you know, that, that what you were first talking about, about the, you know, at the end, um, you know, everybody will say, you know, isn't it great or isn't it easy? And you know, there there is a lot of um, so in behavioral economics that that it's commonly uh, it happens so often. We would just refer to it as expert discounting, um, and it's a psychological bias that we all have. Um, so you know, you look at an expert; it's the um, the the common analogy on that is the locksmith You you get to your house you're locked out of you're locked out of the house you don't have a key you call a locksmith locksmith number one comes over and he has very little experience takes out a ton of tools and spends over an hour to on your front door to get it open the the door opens and he turns to you and he says okay that'll be a hundred dollars you reach into your wallet, you give him $100. A week later, it's the same thing. You locked out, you call up, except this time you get a locksmith that's got 30 years of experience. He walks over with one tool. In five minutes, he's got your door open. He turns to you and says, that'll be $100. And you feel like, $100? You only spent five minutes. And the what's happening there is you're discounting the expertise of his 30 years of locksmith experience that got you the same result as, as, the less competent locksmith. So that just, it kind of is the psychology around that. And then um, going, you know, to what you were saying around the, the stoplights, I, I think in, in Amazon's working backwards, they talk about making a decision with like 70, 75% of the information you need Um, which is is a bias to make a decision because, or I'm sorry, I think it's like 75% of decisions are reversible. So just make a decision, make it, and and if it's a failure, in most cases, you're not going to, that decision's not going to cause human, you know, cause death or sink a submarine. So make one, have a bias for decisions and actions, Because if you're wrong, you can just change the decision. Make a new one.
2: I I love both of your takes on there. First of all, the expert discounting happens all the time. And uh, it not not only happens to people that bring expertise, but when you recall a a way that something spectacularly failed and uh, trying to encourage people not to follow the same path, right? So this, this mm-hmm. is something I think comes up in the business world very often where you may not have an individual expertise, but you, you can observe a set of, um, uh, a path that has unfolded and caused a bad outcome. So let's make sure that if we're choosing a same or similar path, that we're, uh, looking forward to the edges and corners of the problems that, that may incur because a similar thing happened in the, in, in the past. And I, I encounter this often in, in corporate America, right? The institutional oh, yeah. oh, knowledge yeah. disappears. Uh, the, those paths have been tried and retried. Um, and it's not to out, outright say don't follow that path. It turns out that it might have been too soon, Or you didn't have the right technology, or um, you didn't have the right people and staff to accomplish it that that way. But so it's not to outright uh, uh, deny following the old path again. It's to consciously go into that path uh, and absolutely say say why it may or may not succeed. Right, and and put in metrics and checkpoints right along the way since it's not worked in the past.
3: Exactly. And um, that that's our friend, Steve, uh, sorry, Dr. Sloman at Brown University with causal models, right? So many of the, the decisions that we say in business, you know, we've tried this before. Well, that's not causation, that's correlation, right? There are so many environmental factors that we're into there, but what becomes the, you know, the business lore is that this this was a cause there, there was a direct causal relationship and there there wasn't and so you can try the same thing in it because things have changed technology has changed the environment has changed
2: but but i to me it's actually calling it out that this has been tried before and we're going to try it again and this is why it should be different this time like just be frank right. about it be hiding it is the part that really frustrates me like when you try it and don't admit that it may come out the same way again or yeah. a negative way or a positive way, whatever you, you know, usually you, your playbook is default. Playbooks have been successful. So you're going to follow them because they're successful, but the the bad or negative outcomes are the ones that uh, are, are the ones that are always challenging. And when you see an organization refollowing that negative path, right. Uh, for an outcome.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Absolutely. I love it. This is a great discussion. So, we're coming up on ten minutes left, and we're at the beginning of a whole nother chapter. So, what I wanted to do is just uh, read a little bit of the forward to the next chapter, uh, and start the discussion on that, and leave the bulk of the chapter for the next time. So, that I love this chapter. It really gets us thinking about, you know, empowerment, organization structures. Is it a change from the tops down or the bottoms up or both? Uh, something we didn't touch on, but the the words truly are there. Um, you know what is is the org ready for change? Like one of my one of my favorites is: Have you even said the words out loud? That like you said, Tim, we're going to try this a different way. Everybody, get ready for some change. And not you can't just say it once. You actually have to repeat that uh, the you know at least three times for humans to finally catch on that. A change is in in flight, right? Uh, Business as usual, chapter two. Are you and your people working to optimize the organization for their tenure or forever to promote long-term success? I had to ignore the short-term reward system. And so I'm going to pause right there. So this is, I think, the dichotomy a lot of organizations get caught up in, which is, especially, um, I'm living this. Personally, in my day to day, which is a long-term structural change has been put in place, but people are still executing short-term things in in the old way. Right? They're not trying new methods. They are not um, uh, looking to optimize or say, "Is that way truly optimal?" And what I see happen, and and I don't know if this happens on a ship. I'm, we'll find out because it's been a while since I read this, but. What I see happen in these problems like this is that you introduce what we in the tech world call technical debt. You you in, with introducing a change or skipping steps or rushing something through, uh, or instituting in change even uh, that you accrue uh, where you stop focusing. You accrue technical debt where you stop focusing, and I mean I don't know maybe I'm just hypersensitive being in the technology world to this. But all too often, people see that you were successful at um, a little project or a program. It doesn't have to be that little, obviously. It's all relative. I always forget who I work for and what little means to me is not what little may mean to Abez or Tim or Joseph uh, or Slick or Christopher. But the net-net is when things are successful and when they're not successful, uh, how we seem to Ignore the long tail of the problem, right? This is the enduring part of change, or the enduring part of implementing something. And it's fascinating because I went through a leadership change recently, where I my the who I reported to and how they behaved um, uh, is drastically different. One person had a lot of strategic vision, and this new leader doesn't have strategic vision. Uh, right? Their horizon timelines are different, and how different that can cause this other idea that I introduced with technical debt to accumulate. When you actually have a strategic vision, you can say, is the vision in line with not accruing too much technical debt as we move forward? Versus if you have a short horizon for your uh, vision, that technical debt be damned, we're just going to keep moving forward. Thoughts?
3: Well, that's painful. That hurts me. Um, it, it hurts me all the time with with technical debt because you know, working on the human side um, with technical teams when they say like we're going to take on this technical debt because you know speed reasons you know we need to work around to solve this um, the the users the the people that are the here and now people um, there there's struggles to, to work within that framework. And they, they understand that they at least understand that there's a decision that was made for a reason. And so they go this non-optimal path. And that's fine where it's a constant struggle is I then say, okay, what's your employee retention rate? How many new staff members are coming on? And particularly in the past three, five years with staff turnover, there's new people. And so the people that are here when that that is put in place, they're one cohort of people. But a new person that comes on six months from now has no context for that. And so they come in and it's, why is it this way? Oh, my gosh, how inefficient is this? And it's because, you know, they didn't live through that decision making, you know, that 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 decision process. So coming in fresh and there's always what is 10 percent, 20 percent of the company that, that's coming through, coming in, coming onto a department.
2: And well, so you, 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 had, th- you hit it spot on like the, the, this is technology innovation at its finest right here.
3: And those those poor new people have to like relive <laughs> relive the trauma.
2: But but is it? But be- I think to your point on your Amazon example, seventy five percent of those decisions can be unwound. So, look, uh, I this is what I always try to encourage people that come in new. Don't let discussions tamp down your great ideas. Ask lots of questions. To see if somebody individually or group documentation knows how we got here and the why, and if those reasons are still holding true, right? Yep. I, I, all there, of us.
3: There's a material. To... There's a material cost. You know, I, I yeah. was working with, working with a client right now, and they they've instituted they made one decision, and it will cause every single one of their users seven minutes. Um, and so they're like, you know, it's it's seven minutes. You get through it at their scale. That's $500,000. Yeah. Every time they, they put seven minutes of burden on people, that's $500,000 of cost to the company. Now it's spread and hidden across the organization. So you're not going to see it on a nice accounting line, yeah. but seven minutes here, seven minutes there, seven minutes here. So all of a sudden you're into the millions of dollars of of just time not taking into account frustration and task switching and all of that other just every seven minutes so like you know I, we're using that as an argument to you know address the technical debt because the cost of the technical debt will you know there's the ROI for the added time to address the technical debt
2: 100% and you know what's coming up right now our heart stop. Our hard stop. <laughs> <laughs> Joseph, uh, Ebez, uh, tell me about the hard stop that we have today.
1: Hey, I just want to say thank you for this conversation. Um,
3: just that last uh, riff, I, I could go on and on on that. So but no, it's 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 an awesome read and I'm enjoying it. So thank you.
1: Yeah, totally, totally appreciate it as well, uh, Praxum. I think uh, next Thursday we're in March, but um, maybe we, we do a wrap up uh, as well, or we see. We'll, we'll, we'll discuss. Uh, maybe we'll discuss tomorrow, No Gender Friday, if we want to just do one more session or come up with a new book. And obviously, if anyone has a recommendation for a March book, we would love to hear it. Uh, the Poep should be live right now. And remember, the code is, hard stop. All lowercase, one word. I will see you all. Uh, wait, I can't stop now. It's eight fifty nine. God forbid we should be earlier. Uh, we should we should be too early. Uh, Christopher, I'd love to hear you on stage one of these days as well. It's always good to see in the audience. Slick, it's great to see you back again. And uh, no agenda Friday for tomorrow. What will we discuss? I have no idea because I have no agenda coming into it. But uh, have an amazing day, everyone. Uh, Go and uh, create um, some more leaders. Remember, the, the objective of a leader is to create more leaders. Take care, everyone. Cheers.
3: You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Steve Turney hosts a great podcast geared toward mental health marketers called The Boost.
1: or search for The Boost wherever you get your podcasts.
3: You heard him. Go subscribe. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.